Good morning again. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I've been longing to be with you this morning in the Word as I've dug into Scripture this week. The Lord's um, just dealt with my own heart in a lot of ways, and I pray that for all of us that the Lord would work in our own hearts, that we'd be receptive to the Word of God, and that we would hear what God is trying to teach us, and that not only would we hear, but we would obey. And as James says later on, we want to be doers of the Word and not merely hearers. Well, most of you were here last week, and we, we've been looking at James chapter 1, and in James chapter 1, verses 2 through uh, really about 18, have to deal with trials. Because James is a pastor and he knows that all believers face hard times in life. We all face many various trials, as he said in verse 2. Various is, is a multitude or multifaceted trials. A lot of commentators say that the trials that these believers were, were facing were specifically persecution, but I believe that James means more than just persecution because he uses the word various. We all face hard times, and there's hard times that we face that are brought on by our own sin, and there's consequences for that. But there's hard times that we face that we don't choose to bring upon ourselves. Right? There's sickness, there's cancer. There's financial difficulty at times that we didn't bring upon ourselves. There's a loss of job. And there's multitudinal, various forms of trials, as James said. And we think about those trials and the fact that life is hard at times. And last time we talked about how James' challenge, his instruction to you, instruction to these believers, was that you would have joy in trials. In other words, that you would have a joyous attitude, that you would make a conscious and willful decision to have a joyous attitude no matter what your circumstances you're facing. And he said there's a reason for that. He said because God sends trials and allows trials to develop perseverance, endurance, or, or steadfastness in our lives. The more that we go through in life, the more that we're able to endure. It's often that picture of the rubber band. Right? If a rubber band is never stretched, you never can see how far it really can go. And that's us in our lives. James says that God sends trials for your testing to refine you. Like gold and silver, He's removing the bits in your life that are unacceptable to Him. He's purifying you. He's also testing to see if your faith is, is real. Do you have a real faith? A faith that, that trusts in the Lord no matter what, or is it, is it you only trust God because times are good and things are going great? But he said that's not even the purpose or the outcome of trials. The, the real outcome of trials, in verse 4, it says you may be perfect, you may be complete. The word perfect there is mature. That you may be well-rounded, completeness. It's like a, a block of marble as you chip away the pieces that you don't want as you're, as you're working on that sculpture that you would be complete, well-rounded. That's God's goal for trials in your life. So that you can have joy knowing that, one, your endurance is being produced, but that the goal that God has for you is a great goal. And that's maturity in Jesus Christ. But James understands... Just like I know many of you are saying, but, but wait, Pastor. I understand that trials produce endurance, and I'm okay with that. It sounds like a good and noble thing. And I know that trials are producing maturity in my life, and I know that's a good thing. But you know, how do I endure these trials? Help me to endure it. Because I know that it's producing endurance, and I know that it's going to lead to maturity, but how am I going to endure this? And you can see James's pastoral heart come out. Because that's what we're going to be dealing with today. So we're going to be dealing with how to endure trials in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. I remember taking a friend of mine on his uh, bachelor party, uh, which you guys would call a Bucks night. 
um, we, we decided, or he wanted to go to Disneyland. We were Christians, and so that eliminated a lot of, uh, of normal stuff that go on at, at, at uh, Stag's Night or Buck's Nights. So we, uh, we, we went to want to go to Disneyland. So we went to Disneyland. It was a bunch of uh, grown men going to Disneyland. And we, we had all these um, fun and crazy, embarrassing things that we made him do. We planned out this whole thing, made him wear this big bright orange t-shirt. says, I'm getting married on it. Just, just a real embarrassing, a fun, clean night. Well, one of the rides at, at Disneyland is called Space Mountain. And if you haven't, are familiar with this particular ride, it's a great ride. It's a roller coaster that takes place indoors, in the dark, with lights flashing. In fact, they say if you have epilepsy, you should not go on this ride because the lights are flashing and there's like stars. And it's, it's a fun ride. So we got on this ride and we're about halfway through and it comes to a grinding halt. Now, it doesn't go upside down, thank goodness, but we were come to a grinding halt. We're looking around and we're laughing and, and all of a sudden the lights flip on. And we're just sitting there, and we're looking around and looking around, and finally some attendants come, and they have to kind of push the cart, get it going, and we ride through the rest of the half of the ride, and the lights on. And I can tell you that riding in that ride with the lights on was far more scarier than riding with the lights off. Because, you know, a normal roller coaster, you, you're, you're swaying, and you've got your arms up, and you're like, yeah, this is fun. But when you get there and you, you see how close those tracks and those, those overhangs are to where you're going and how that tilts. You, you, you don't want to put your arms up because you're worried, well, maybe I'm not going to have arms after this is over. So honestly, it was a lot scarier. And then we got to the end and, and we were like, hey, we need to do this again. You know, we, we, we didn't get a chance. And they're like, no, no, go ahead. So they let us go through again. But I can tell you that we all kind of held on a little tighter and we kept our arms down a little lower because we were all thinking about what was behind the darkness. And so what it was is, is the light of the, of the ride, when the lights came out, it changed our perspective. And that's what James is challenging you, and that's what he's challenging his readers, is to have a different perspective in trials. And he said, well, that's how you endure your trials, is you have the right perspective. But what he says, he says, in order to have this perspective, to have the right mindset in trials, you have to have and you need wisdom. Wisdom that only comes from God. And so what are we looking at this morning? We're looking at four points that James makes, or four instructions. He says you need wisdom. He says turn to the source of wisdom. He says pray for wisdom. And then he says, reject doubt. And that's in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. So let's go ahead and look at the passage and we'll dig in. You know what? I'm going to start at verse 2 so you can kind of get the complete thought. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." So the first thing that James says, it says is, you need wisdom. Look in verse 5, he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, we'll just stop there. The if there is a first class conditional statement in the Greek, Jordan will be happy to describe all the different conditional Greek conditions for you if you just want to go to them afterwards as he's studying Greek. But first class conditional, it simply means that James is assuming that this is true. Right? It's, it's not the, oh, if one day I can go to you know, the beach. James is saying, look, you need wisdom. That we all as believers lack wisdom in some measure or degree. Right? But what he also said, he says, consider it or let in... Excuse me. He says, but even if you lack wisdom, and he says, he wants you to recognize that you need help. Because one of the things as you go through trials and, and you're struggling and it's hard, and it's tough, and you just want to throw your hands up and say, I just can't do this anymore, and Lord, help me. 
Help me to understand what I'm going through and why you've sent this and how I can get through it. James says you need to have a humility to recognize that you lack wisdom, that you need help. Right? We don't have all the answers, but our Creator does. Right? When you're at wit's end, I like the expression, I'm at wit's end. Right? When you're at wit's end, that's a good thing. Because you stop trying to think about it and reason it out and you can't figure it out. So guess what you need to do? James says if you lack wisdom, you go to God who gives wisdom. So James says, first of all, you're lacking and you need to understand that. You need to have a, a bit of humility to understand that, look, I'm going through this trial, I need help. And he says, if you lack wisdom, and what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is the God-given insight to understand and apply God's truth to every aspect of your life, right? So we're, we're studying God's Word, we're, you're reading God's Word, because wisdom is not just, it's not knowledge. Knowledge is a part, right? The Greeks would say that, that knowledge in itself alone, a philosophy, is wisdom. The, the Jews would say, no, 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 no. Wisdom is applying God's Word. It's, it's practical. And that's the way James is using it here. He's Jewish, So it's not about knowledge, it's about how to live your life to please and honor God in accordance with His will. So James understands that trials can overwhelm even the most godly person. And he says that you need, you lack wisdom, you need it. And one thing to remember about wisdom, wisdom comes from God as we'll see in a minute, and it can't be achieved through your own efforts. And knowledge alone. I know plenty of people that have a, have a great knowledge of God's Word, much of the Bible memorized, but yet they have very little wisdom. They don't apply it to their lives. They don't live by it. So James says, look, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And he said, that's the, that's the origin of wisdom. Right? Because there's, there's ultimately two types of wisdom. There's heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. James says this himself. In James chapter 3. And see, when you look at heavenly wisdom, it's, it's also called spiritual wisdom. Paul recalls it spiritual wisdom in Colossians. Because it comes from the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.9, if you guys remember, Paul prays for these Colossian believers. And he says that he prays that they would have spiritual wisdom. That they would have understanding of how to use and... and um, and take God's Word and apply it to their lives in a practical way. In 1 Corinthians 2, there's a long section. Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he, and he talks about how true wisdom comes only from God, and it comes through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to the mind of Christ. Holy Spirit knows the heart of man. Holy Spirit knows the Word of God and helps you to understand the Word of God. But then there's natural or earthly wisdom. That's, that's the wisdom that, that's all around us. It's humanistic wisdom. James even said this is demonic wisdom. Romans 1.22 says, talking about unbelievers in the world, it says they profess to be wise, but they became fools. They became fools because they rejected the truth. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And they tried to figure out the nature of their existence, the nature of their condition in this world, and their future destiny apart from God. Natural man looks at the beautiful world. We sang about God's creation this morning. The natural man looks at that creation, and what do they do? They reject God. That's what Romans 1 says, right? Paul talks about wisdom. The wisdom of God was rejected by men. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the whole first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians are beautiful in the sense that Paul argues and says, like, the wisdom of God on one hand, and you have the wisdom of man on the other, wisdom of man, they could never come to a knowledge of God. Wisdom of God seems foolish. That's why so many of your friends, when you start talking about God creating the world or God has a purpose for your life or there's a future judgment and destiny, they think you're foolish. Because it is foolish to them. It goes against everything that's natural. Human wisdom is is self-seeking, self-focused. It's called humanistic 
ideas for a reason. It's reasoning apart from God. And the reason I draw that contrast is because when, you, when you're praying for wisdom and when you're talking about wisdom, we're talking about wisdom that God gives you to understand your trials. Because what's going to happen in your trials, if it hasn't already happened in your life, is that your friends, whether they're believing or unbelieving, they're going to offer you worldly wisdom. They're going to say what Job's friends say. One thing about Job, be careful when you quote Job's friends. Because if you read at the end of the book of Job, God rebukes his friends. And he says, you have not spoken to me correctly. In fact, you've misrepresented me and you need to repent and offer sacrifices, and you need to have Job pray for you. Okay? Well, Job's friends, and I just started writing down a list of some of the things that that they were telling Job. And these are some of the things that your friends, believers, and Job's friends seem to be believers, believers and unbelievers, they'll say to you, if you're going through tough times, they'll say, well, you know what? The innocent doesn't suffer, so you must not be innocent. Or they'll say something like, well, God rewards the good, and He judges the wicked. So, why don't you have any blessings in your life? Or they'll say something like Zophar, one of Joe's friends, well, if you would just repent of your sins, your life would be, be great. Or they would say something like Eliphaz, well, you know, you're just being presumptuous and prideful. That's why all these things are happening to you. It's God's judgment upon you. Or they'll say, well, you know what, this is just God making things right. All those blessings that you had were ill-gotten. Or Eliphaz, or Job, you know, you live such a selfish life. This is just God balancing the scales. Or even Bildad, who misquoted totally God, and he said that no man can be righteous. You're just being too religious, Job. You see, there are two types of wisdom. There's the wisdom of man, and there's the wisdom of God. So you desperately need help. You you need that wisdom. And that's what James is saying. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Because he's assuming, and he's right, that when we go through trials, and I've been through tough trials in my life. I lost my father at a young age in a car accident. And I was a believer. And I learned a lot about dealing with trials through that event. And you guys have lost loved ones. And you've had people in your family have cancer. Or, or as parents, our children get sick and we feel helpless. There's trials in our lives. Financial difficulty. And James knows that. And he says, you need wisdom. You want to understand how to deal with the trial in your life in a right way. You understand how to have joy, how to endure. You need wisdom. And that gets to the second point. And he says, look, you have to turn to the source of wisdom. He says, look, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach so that it will be given to him. You know, one thing about the Greek, sometimes you see how the English translators have to make decisions sometimes. And they're not wrong. But sometimes you can read a sentence in one way or another. It just depends on how you apply a particular adjective. But in verse Verse 5, it says, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach. It says, let him ask of God who gives. Well, I think a better reading in the Greek is that the gives, the give, the word give, sorry, in the, in the Greek is a description of God. So let him ask of the giving God, right? So it, he's making a point, James is making a point about God's character. Let him ask the giving God. You see, God gives common grace to all mankind. Matthew 5, 45, For He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and seeds the rain and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, God's common grace is demonstrated in our lives daily. I mean, we see people and they enjoy great lives. That's God's common grace to man. They get married, they have kids, they go to the beach, they go on holiday, it rains, their crops grow. That's God's common grace. It's called common because it's, 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 it's not special. It's not discriminate. It, it goes out to everyone. But you know what? God gives us, God gives Christians special grace. Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but He delivered Him over for us, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? 
Paul's talking about, in that context, grace to live, grace to overcome, grace to have victory over sin. Right? God gives us, he's, we're, for, we're saved by grace. Do you think He just saves us and He leaves us alone? No. Now, He sends those trials in your life for a reason, but you're not in it alone. He gives us special grace. And God, He says, God gives wisdom. Right? God is the one that is the source of that wisdom. So when, you, when you're going through your trial and you don't understand it and you can't figure it out and you're at your wit's end, James says, ask God. Ask God for help. Ask God for wisdom. Knowing that He is a giving God. It's part of His character. Well, James also says, look, not only is He a giving God, but He gives what? He gives generously. Now, the word there in Greek is haplos, and it's only used here in this particular way as an adverb, but it's used in an adjective in other parts in Scripture. And other, other places in Scripture, especially 2 Corinthians eleven three. I'd like to read how it's used, and you'll see the point I'm trying to make in just a second. In 2 Corinthians eleven three says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So the word here is used as as simplicity. So when we think about the word in the sense of of simplicity, it doesn't mean necessarily generous. It means wholeheartedly. So God gives with undivided intent to His people. Right? His motivation is to benefit you who are asking Him for wisdom. He's wholeheartedly giving you what you're asking for. Right? He has a singleness of intent. In fact, in, in Luke, uh, in the King James, it talks about the eye of man. And it, only, it really only says this or uses this word in the King James, but it says when the eye is single, the NAS, ESV, I'll translate it as pure or clear. It says when the eye is, is single, the heart is right. Okay? The idea is when the eye has a singleness of purpose, the same word here. God is singleness of purpose when you're asking. He's wholehearted in what He gives to you. But He says also, not only is He giving it to you and gives you what you ask wholeheartedly, because He's a giving God, but He gives it without shame, without reproach. Think about it this way. Our kids come to you. Those of you who have parents, my kids come to me, Dada, can I have a treat? Right? Can I have a treat, Dada? Well... You know what? You weren't, you weren't very nice to your brother just a few minutes ago, right? Did you eat all your vegetables? You know, you got to do better eating your vegetables. All right, we'll give you a treat. You see how we, we include a little bit of a reproach in there, a little bit of correction, and that's not wrong. But the point here that James is making is when you go to God, He doesn't find fault with you. He doesn't say, all right, all right, Benji. You know, you, you've been doing this and this and this, but, you know, I'll give you wisdom, right? Or, Bill, you know, you, you've been doing this or you've been treating your wife kindly. I'm going to give you this. You see, God doesn't reproach us because if we've been forgiven from our sins. He no longer considers our sins anymore. He gives us what we need without shaming us. So you don't have to be embarrassed, we all, have, we all have stumbles and moments of doubt and follies in our life. Right? We're, all, we're all inconsistent in some measure. We don't have to go to God and be embarrassed and say, or, or even re, kind of refuse to go to God. I don't want to go to God and ask for wisdom because I don't deserve it. You don't have to be embarrassed. God gives freely. He gives generously. He gives wholeheartedly. And He gives without you being shamed, without finding fault in you. And I love the way James says this. Just know also that when you ask God for wisdom, that the end of verse 5, it will be given to him. It will be given to you. You can trust God to answer your request. One of the things we teach our kids, my wife and I, is we teach our kids that they can trust what we say. Right? We tell them that something is going to happen. We do all in our power to make sure it happens. Right? Even if it means, you know, sacrificing our own personal time, Beth and I. We also mean it in the sense of if we tell them that they're going to receive discipline, 
for something, we follow it through because we want them to understand that they can trust our word, that we're going to follow through what we say we're going to do, whether it's good or bad, or we better say good or disciplined, right? Whatever we tell them we're going to do, we're going to do it. Well, brethren, God gives you wisdom when you ask for it, right? You can trust Him. James says that it will be given to you. He is trustworthy. You're not alone in your trials. That's how you can endure it. You're receiving wisdom from God to understand your trials, to think of them in the right way, the right perspective. And God is there with you, and He's given you what you need. So James not only says that you, you need wisdom and that you should turn to the source of wisdom, but he says, pray for wisdom. Verse 5 and verse 6, he says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And verse 6, But he must ask in faith. We're talking about here, and James isn't just saying like, Oh, you know, you need to ask for wisdom. James is making this a command. He's saying that when you go through trials... And you will. He's saying that you need to ask. You need to pray continuously for the wisdom to understand your trials. You need to have that constancy in prayer. You need to pray for the Holy Spirit to help you understand God's Word and apply it to your life so that you can have the proper perspective. Right? If we don't ask, if we aren't in prayer asking God for wisdom, what does that mean? Well, it means we're, we're attempting to go through this trial in a self-sufficient manner. right? What is self-sufficiency? Pride. We're saying, Lord, I can go through this. I'm okay. I don't have to ask for help. Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will open to you. Ask. Pray to God. You need the help to understand trials. Right? And it having that right perspective. So when, when you're going through a hard time, the question that we always ask, Oh Lord, why me? But that's not the right question. Right? The right question is, Lord, how can I glorify you in this trial? How can I understand this trial in my life? What are you trying to teach me in this trial? How can I impact other people in this trial for your glory? Those are questions that we have to have the right perspective. We have to have wisdom to ask those questions. Because we refocus the attention away from ourselves in in the trial, and we start praying to God, Lord, I need wisdom. Help me to understand the trial from your perspective. See, that's that's a mature perspective. That's, That's maturity. right? Looking at trials, looking at circumstances in a God-centered way instead of a man-centered way. But James says, look, not only you should ask, but in verse 6 he says, you must ask in faith without any doubting. Well, faith is the a, is a right heart attitude. It literally means a, a wholehearted attitude of trust and dependence upon God. Going back to the wholehearted, you know, God gives wholeheartedly. Well, you're, you're asking in faith, you're asking with that wholeheartedness, that, that singleness of intent. Just remember, God's not, and so often people think this, God's not a cosmic vending machine, right? We go to Him and we pray, Lord, I'm in a tough time, I need some help. Or Lord, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm struggling, can you give me something? Can you help me? Can you, can you, in other words, can you help give me something physically to bless me? Lord, I need, I need new, more money, I need, I need more, uh, I need a new car, Right? I need this, I need that. He's not just going there and put the money and you get the you get the you, you automatically get whatever you're asking for. Okay? God answers prayers in accordance with his character and his word. Right? He's made promises to you. Right? He's not a it's not a name and in claim it. I can ask for whatever I want and God's going to give it to me. Your, your prayers always have to be, and this is where wisdom comes in in accordance with the character and nature of God, in accordance to His Word. His Word gives us His will for our lives. Right? We know God's will for us is what? One of them, one aspect of His will is our sanctification, 1 Thessalonians. So you're, you're praying for something. You're saying, Lord, I could use a brand new car. Okay? 
So the real question is, Lord, I want to be Christ-like, and you know that I need a car for transportation, but do I need a brand new, you know, Ferrari, right? So God provides what we need, not necessarily what we want, because He's working in our lives to sanctify us. And maybe He doesn't give us a new car at all. Maybe it's a, you know, an 86 Toyota Ute or old Holden Ute. Since we're in Australia, right? And it gets us where we need to go, right? We learn later on, and we'll talk about this a little bit next week, that, that riches actually are a trial. We think about riches as a blessing, but James says riches are a trial. Think about that when you start praying for more riches, that you're actually praying for God to give you a trial. But he said you should ask in faith. When you think about doubting, doubting is being torn in two different directions, right? It's the, it's the opposite of faith. If faith is singleness of intent, then doubting is, is you're just being pulled, right? Pulled apart. It's like that oscillating fan in my son's room. It just keeps going back and forth, back and forth. And it won't stop as I put a little tab, right? Oscillating fan, right? So you're, you're oscillating between two competing desires. You're, you're, you're actually having a dispute with yourself. That's what doubt is. It's like, Lord, I, I trust you, but... You know, one of the things about doubt is we often, when we pray, we, we pray in faith, we pray in accordance with what's humanly possible. Do you realize that? Think about, think about our prayers, right? So often we pray in accord with what's humanly possible. We say, God, we just pray that you will meet this need. And we say, you know, we pray that they would, uh, they would be able to work hard, in their job, they would receive, you know, as they work hard, they get more money and they'd be able to pay off a bill or they'd be able to take care of a medical expense or something like that. We, we think about it in a humanistic term or, or what's humanly possible. We don't actually think about, and so often we show little faith and we say, Lord, will you deal with this and will you answer this in a way that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, and that we can attribute to nothing else but you. We've been praying for a new building. You guys have been praying for a long time. I've been praying since I'm, I was, I've gotten here. right? We're still waiting to move in, but the things are progressing. That's a prayer God has answered in a way that we couldn't even imagine. The fact that we bid on this property, it was rejected. We thought we were going to have to go in a different direction. And months later, we were able to come back again and bid on it again. I mean, those are, those are examples that we can't, we can't attribute to anything else but God Himself. I love Romans 4.20. He's talking about Abraham. He said, Yet with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. You reckon Abraham had a reason to waver? He was promised a child and years and years and years and years passed until really... Humanly speaking, it was impossible. But yet, we know the story, right? Sarah gets pregnant at a very, very old age. Right? So, Abraham didn't waver in his faith. You know, I was reading about Dr. Guthrie, a Scottish preacher, and how one morning he was praying at his home, in his office, in his study, and his daughter heard him, and he was praying for rain. Later that evening, as he was going to church, she said, Here, Dada, uh, don't forget your umbrella. And she goes, What is that for? And she said, Well, you were praying for rain, and I don't want you to get wet. See, that's the faith of a child, but that's the faith that we should have, knowing that, that God's going to answer our prayers. The reason that so many of us don't ask in trials or don't receive wisdom is we don't pray. We don't pray in faith knowing that God's going to answer that prayer, that, that, we're going to, that we can trust in God, that He's going to help us to understand our trial, that He's going to help us endure that trial, that He's, He's putting that trial in our life for a purpose. But we pray to God and we trust that He is going to have our best interests at heart, that He is going to answer our prayers. So James said that we have to... He said, first of all, sorry, that you need wisdom. He says that you should turn to the source of wisdom. 
And then he says finally that you should reject doubt. He's already said don't be the doubter. But then he goes through and he gives some examples of of the doubting person. Because he's trying to emphasize it to such an extent that you would be horrified by the doubting person, that you would recoil from that, and that you wouldn't doubt. I love James. He gives gives beautiful illustrations, beautiful pictures of what he's talking about. Look down in verse 6. He says, But he must ask in faith without any doubt. He says, For, or because, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to respect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. Because James says, first of all, in verse 6, that the doubting person is, is like the surf, right? He says in verse 6, he says, For the one doubt is like the surf. It's a, it's a simile. He's drawing a comparison. So you think about a surf. You go to the beach. I love going to the beach. You ever just kind of sit and watch the surf? I know if you have kids, it's hard at times. But, you know, you, you watch the surf. Watch the waves come in. You know, they don't seem to come in the same way any time, right? They, they'll come in this way, and they seem to be following some sort of pattern, and all of a sudden they'll shift. The wind blows a little bit. Or maybe, maybe the current changes a little bit, and they're, they're shifting back and forth. It's beautiful, right? It's inconsistent. It's one of the things I love about it. But James says, look, if you're doubting, you're living an anchorless life. He said, you're like the waves, you're like the surf. There's a constant changing conditions in your life, a, a moment by moment. You're, you're being driven by outside forces. There's an insecurity to your life because you don't understand your purpose in life or God's purposes for you. One of the things about new believers, as they, as they come to the Lord, they're very insecure. Right? They don't have past experiences with God's faithfulness. They don't have a a great understanding of God's promises. That's why we're praying for, what we pray for knowledge, and we grow in our understanding of the Word, but we're praying for wisdom to be able to take that Word, take that knowledge, and apply it to our lives. So if you're you're doubting, you're, you're an anchorless person, or you're living an anchorless life, there's inconsistency because you lack a single purpose. You're just being blown around by all the outside forces in your life. Hebrews 6, 19 says, The hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope that is both sure and steadfast, and one which enters in the veil. Jesus Christ is our hope. He anchors our souls. We have a purpose in this life. Colossians, remember in Colossians, the purpose is what? Honor the Lord in everything you say and do. In other words, you're giving Him glory. That's your purpose. You know, I remember piloting a little boat growing up. We had this little 19-foot, don't ask me to translate that in meters, 19-foot outboard boater. And I remember as I got older, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, my, my dad would let me drive the boat, right? We'd go out fishing. Well, I remember one specific time a storm was coming up. And the sky got dark really quick, and the waves started getting really choppy. And, you know, my dad's like, hey, son, get out of the way. I'm taking, I'm taking the motor, taking the control. And my, my dad took control in the storm because it's easy to navigate life. It's easy to navigate the sea when it's calm. But when the waves increase and the boat is buffeted, your life is buffeted by the waves and the storm, it really shows who's driving the boat. Right? That, you see that bumper sticker in the States, I don't see it too much here, but God is my co-pilot. That's such a falsehood, biblically. God's, God should be the pilot and you should be in the back, trusting in Him to drive the boat, drive the ship, drive the plane. You see, if you're, if you're living a life of doubt, you're anchorless. But not only that, he says you have a wrong judgment about God. Verse 7, he says that man ought to expect that he would receive will not receive anything from the Lord. So he has a wrong judgment. James says, that man. He says, that doubting guy over here, he's kind of distancing himself, going, that guy. That guy, he should have no expectations. He should suppose or expect, because he does. He, He expects God to answer his prayer, even though he's a doubting. 
Even though he's living an inconsistent life, a hypocritical life. He only prays when things are tough. He only, he only spends time with God when things are tough. He's a hypocrite. He's inconsistent. He's showing doubt. He doesn't really expect, sorry, he doesn't really know God. But he expects God to answer his prayer. He supposes, and, and the word suppose there, expect, is, it means that he, he looks at it or he has his a judgment based off of subjective feelings. Kind of like, you know, well, God's going to answer my prayer, but, well, because uh, God, you know, God's good and God loves me and, you know, God wouldn't let me down. It's all about emotional experience for him. But James says, look, don't, don't let this guy or this guy should not think because he has the wrong judgment about God, but he should not think that he's going to get anything. He may receive some of God's common grace, but he's not going to receive wisdom. He's not going to get to, to, to understand fully what he's going through and why. You know, he doesn't understand that, that God is powerful, that nothing is impossible. He doesn't understand that God is holy, that God desires holiness in his people. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And God uses trials to produce what? A holy life. Right? He doesn't understand that, that faith is essential to spiritual life. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous man shall live by faith. He doesn't understand that God hates sin. In other words, he lacks fear of God. So not only is he anchorless, he has a wrong judgment. Look in verse 8. He is unstable. He's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. You know, I love it when... Um, you, ever, you ever written a letter to somebody and you make up a word, Right? Just for kicks and giggles. You know, it sounds good. And you're like, you know, I can't think of a word, so I'll make up one. I do this to my brother sometimes. He's an English, English literature rhetoric professor. And, you know, it's kind of like I'll use incorrect grammar. Because I'm the oldest and I have to be a little antagonistic. So, but James actually makes up a word here. This is actually a word. It, it became so, so ingrained in Christian culture that you find the, the later patriarchs using this word all throughout their language. He actually created a word and it, it entered in even to English lexicon in some sense. But the word is double-minded. Literally, it means double-souled. It has to do with a, a vacillating, hesitant, indecisive, wavering heart. You're going back and forth. right? You're, you're in conflict with one another. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that's where John Bunyan gets Mr. Facing Both Ways, if you read Pilgrim's Progress. You know, I remember when I was younger, I, I heard a noise and went outside, and it was something banging near our, our rubbish, our trash cans, our rubbish cans. And I looked over there, and I grabbed, I had grabbed the flashlight, and I, and I spied out, and it was a raccoon. And now raccoons are notorious, they're very smart. And they can open trash can lids and they'll dig through all your trash and it goes everywhere. So, you know, I, all of a sudden I ran over there. I was like, hey. And it was interesting, the raccoon, he, he kind of went left for a second. And then he kind of went right for a second. And then he just froze as if I couldn't see him. But what it was, he was, he was paralyzed with indecision. He was going back and forth and he didn't choose anyway. He just stood there. As my wife likes to say, indecision is a decision. Right? But see, that's the believer. Right? We're, going through, we're going through trials and, and we're, we're trying to rely on worldly wisdom and we're trying to rely on God's wisdom and we're going back and forth and we're listening to what people say. Oh, maybe the trials are fault. Or, oh, no, wait, I know that God says trials are good. Wait, but you know what? I'm at my wits end and I, and I don't understand it. And, and, and God, why are you doing this to me? Oh, wait, wait, I know, God, why you're doing this to me. You're going back and forth. That's what James is talking about. You're, you're the doubting word. It's a, it's a tug of war in your heart. That's doubt. James says also, and by the way, I do believe this is a believer. Some, some people would say, well, is that a picture of a believer? But James uses this word that he made up one more time in James. In James chapter 4, he says in verse 8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking to these people. So what he's talking about is a hypocritical life. You're living a life, but yet your life doesn't show that you truly trust in God by your actions, by your decisions. And James says the final thing. He says, look, not only are you double-minded, 
right? You're, you have this unstable life, but you're, you're unstable in all your ways. You're, you're restless. You're unsteady. You're walking, you're walking two paths, thinking they're going to go in the same direction. I, I love uh, Robert Frost's poem. I don't know if you guys have ever read that. Two paths in a, you know, converge in the woods. And, and basically the poem is how you know, he, he's debating about which path to take. And it's a beautiful picture. But he just gets to a crossroads, and he's in a, he's in a wooded area, and he's, should I go this way, and maybe this leads to this thing, or maybe this leads to that, I don't know which way to go. And in the end, he chooses one path, and he said, well, I don't know where the other path is going, but I'm going to head in this direction. Well, if you're unstable, you're, you're living an inconsistent life. It's not talking about the occasional lapse. We all have the occasional lapse. We all have the occasional sin. I mean, the sin, all the occasional doubt. But he's talking about an inconsistent life. Uh, you're a hypocrite. Right? People look at you and go, well, they're unstable. Right? They look at you and go, well, they say they're a Christian, but yet when, they, when the, the trials have come, they don't act like it. Right? They, they say that, that that's hypocrisy. You know, I do love my kids. I want you to know that. And you guys hopefully seen that, even though I use them as examples a lot. Um, and they're like all other kids. They're, they're erratic in their behavior. Right? One moment they're happy, the next they're sad. One moment they're sharing and showing kindness, the next they're being selfish and trying to hurt each other. Right? That's kids. They're inconsistent. They're back and forth. I heard an interesting quote the other day about kids. And it said, uh, I, I, I couldn't help it, and I chuckled. It said, children are demanding and distracting and interfere with both duty and pleasure alike. <laughs> that was an interesting quote. Just, just talking about kids. Doesn't mean we don't love them, we don't care about them, but but they're they're inconsistent, right? They're 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 everywhere. Well, believers, God wants you to be mature. He doesn't want you to be babes, to be children anymore. James wants you to be consistent and not doubt, to not be unstable. You know, one of the things when you look at qualifications for an elder, in fact, if you look at Titus, you'll see over and over that what Paul tells Titus is he wants elders, older men, older women, younger men, younger women. He wants them all to be sensible. The word there for sensible also means solid, means stable. James says a doubting person is unstable, right? You're all over the place. Brethren, God calls us to reject doubt, calls us that when we're in trials to reject doubt faithlessness, right? To trust in Him. He wants us to ask for help. So the question goes back to the beginning. How do you endure trials? James says that, look, it's, it's wisdom from God that will help you. Help you to understand your trials, to have a joyful attitude in trials, to, to keep the proper perspective. Look, you won't be able to put your trials into proper context without wisdom from God. You, you'll be, you won't be asking again those relevant questions like, well, how can I glorify God in my trial? Right? We'll be asking the question, the, the immature question is, why me? The mature question is, is, what is God trying to teach me in this circumstance? Or how can I understand this trial, this situation from God's perspective? John Piper has a great book called On Suffering and the Sovereignty of God, and, and it is a great book. And, and one thing I really loved about it is that when I got to the, to the end, the final chapter, Piper has a, a chapter about his own struggle with cancer. And he titled that chapter, and I think this is what I thought was shocking at the time when I first read it, is he titled that chapter, he says, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Right? You see, that's a mature way to look at what a wise way to look at suffering and trials. He says, don't waste your cancer. And he talked about the influence he was able to have. And he, he got to speak to doctors and nurses and other patients that he would never have gotten to speak to if he hadn't had cancer and hadn't been in those different hospitals. Right? And then he said, I wouldn't have the testimony of the fact that it went through the treatment and it's in remission. It seemed like God has healed me, at least for the moment. I wouldn't be able to testify to God's faithfulness. That is a mature perspective on trials, a wise perspective. Brethren, life is hard. 
you're all going to face tough times, hard times in life. I can't get up here and tell you that you won't face difficulty and there won't be tremendous pain and suffering in your life. It's just a nature, part of it's a big nature of the, the sinful world we live in, the consequences of this corrupt world. But just know that you aren't alone. Just know that God is there for you and that God desires to give you wisdom. He just asks that you pray for it, that you, that you realize your need and you ask for that wisdom. And you know, you pray for that wisdom from Him, knowing that He's going to answer, but you pray in faith. I love John Kerry, and you'll find from time to time I quote John Kerry or his life, but he has a great, a great saying. It's probably one of his most famous sayings. He says, Attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Right? That's our lives. Right? We go through tough times, but we trust that God has our best interest at heart. Ask for help. He's there for you. You don't have to go through and endure trials alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank You for... The fact that you are with us in trials, that you help us to endure, that you give us strength, that you give us wisdom. Father, I pray that you would grant us a measure of wisdom. There's different people in here today that are going through many different varied types of trials. Father, you know each individual situation. Father, I pray for them in their hearts that they would remain joyful, that they would seek after you. They would be able to look at their trial from a a biblical, from a a God-centered perspective. Lord, I pray for most of all for comfort for them, for strength. Help them to know that they're not alone, that you are with them. And not only that, they have fellow members of the body of Christ who have been through many trials in their own lives. And we comfort others with the comfort that we have received. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that we would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.